the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you in a special live recording exhibition from the annual AAS conference here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Kaiser Guo, joined up here by acting co-host Jeff Wasserstrom, professor of history at the University of California at Irvine and publisher of the Journal of Asian Studies. Say hello, Jeff. Hi. Give it up. Come on, come on, guys. Give it up. This is a live thing. That's so sweet. So we're delighted to be joined by Pankaj Mishra, who will be delivering a keynote address here at the AAS tomorrow evening. Pankaj is the author of From the Ruins of Empire, Asian Intellectuals Who Remade Asia, The Asian Intellectuals Who Made Asia, a book I had the great pleasure of discussing with Pankaj last year, not only on Seneca, but also at the Capital M Literary Festival in Beijing. He's also the author of An End to Suffering, which is a book about the Gautama Buddha, and The Temptations of the West. Pankaj, we are thrilled that you could join us again for this session. Welcome. Thank you very much. All right. So since last time we spoke, um, you've published a volume called A Great Clamor, which is aimed, if I'm not mistaken, primarily at, at audiences from the subcontinent, right? At, at Indian readership. So I'd like to first spend the first maybe uh, 20 minutes or so talking about that book, uh, which unfortunately uh, was only released in the Indian subcontinent, and which fortunately, I I was saying earlier, I I do get some books sent to me, and this was among them, thanks to Penguin. I did get a copy, um, and it was terrific. And for the rest of the time, I want to focus on intellectual history and the history of intellectuals and uh, the fates of these areas of inquiry in contemporary Asian studies. This is a topic that I've brought up with a number of other guests on Seneca recently, including Orville Schell, uh, and on which I would love to hear perspectives not only from our guests today, but even maybe from the audience uh, if we get a chance. Um, so first of all, Pankaj, how would you describe the range of attitudes that you find among educated Indian elites that you talk to? toward China over the last couple of decades. I mean, I think it was, in my experience, it used to be sort of the Indian national pastime, at least among the educated class, to obsess on China. Is, is that still the case? Uh, less so. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, um, the primary attitude obtaining amongst a uh, large number of educated people in, uh, in India regarding China is one of ignorance, a profound ignorance. Um, we really don't know much about what has happened in China, partly because we haven't had our own uh, sort of sources of knowledge there out there. So we've been dependent upon American or European sources for to tell us what's going on. In fact, uh, I think you may probably correct me, but only one major Indian newspaper had a correspondent there in right. the last uh, decade or so that we had an agency stringer or not, not even a full correspondent there. Fortunately, he's very good on our Krishna. He's he's extremely good. good. Um, And actually, the person who's now replaced him, uh, he's supposed to be good too. But uh, that newspaper is only read by a very small number of people. And uh, so that means that we really have very little, had had very little idea of what's really gone on there. And so it's not until the Beijing Olympics when we were finally able to see on our television sets uh, that China had made this enormous uh, progress, at least in terms of accumulating all these shiny emblems of uh, modernity, which we were striving to also um, acquire, but had failed disastrously. So that was a sort of moment of great reckoning and also shame for many years. So it's not a matter of there being a set of misperceptions that you wanted to try to correct, but rather just a, a general education in, in, in what's happening in China. Yes, well, I mean, partly because, you know, our view of China is so 
clouded by what happened in the border war. 62. In 62. Right? Um, a long time ago. I mean, long time 50, ago, but it's, it's, a, it's a great wound. It's a great wound um, in our historical memory, which, uh, I mean, according to legend, hastened the uh, decline of uh, our first prime minister and you know, brought him to premature death. Uh, this sort of betrayal by his uh, old friends Mao Zedong and Joe Lai. So that remains a, a kind of big um, trauma in, in in Indian memory about that. And one reason why we, I mean, one reason why we really didn't look very clearly at China all these years was that uh, we just felt this is a this is a, this is the place that we really don't want to go into too much. Hmm. Um, and I think uh, really so the last sort of five or six years when the Indian economy has stumbled and uh, of course you know China's also suffered some setbacks but not quite to the same extent and obviously it's become very clear that China's way ahead of India in terms of uh, economic growth and infrastructure um, and, and the sheer presence it has you know in, in, in the world at large as a sort of great economic power and we have nowhere near matching that even though India was yoked to China in the last decade, at least in in these various invocations of uh, power moving from the west to the east, and India was constantly mentioned along with China. Uh, I think that's that's actually stopped too. Sure. In the course of this last decade, uh, you've spent an awful lot of time in China doing research on, of course, your your last book, and then of course on this one as well. Um, so conversely, how would you characterize the range of attitudes among educated Chinese? toward India, their level of interest in or knowledge of uh, the other Asian billion-plus colossus? It's a different kind of ignorance, which is tinged, um, uh, I should be blunt, by contempt, uh, okay. that this is a you know, largely poor country. And, and some people who've been there have been quite shocked. I mean, this is, this is how they report it, by the... Uh, degree of poverty and destitution they see, in, especially in Indian cities. Um, and I think, you know, they don't really think about India in quite the same way as a rival or as a competitor. It's, 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 it's a country that's way behind. Uh, at least that's the sort of general impression I've been able to glean. I think most people know very little about it. It strikes me, though, that um, a great clamor, if it's intended to be uh, a book to expose intellectual Indian audiences to the realities of China, uh, you, you you select some kind of odd vehicles with which to introduce people uh, to, I mean, you work, uh, you, you look at non-fiction works uh, by, by some well-known scholars to fiction works from like, you know, Qian Zhongshu's Fortress Besieged to um, Ma Jian's Beijing Coma or the films of the filmmaker Jia Zhangke. Uh, sort of odd, almost very avant-garde choices. Um, do you anticipate, or do you have you have you found that these resonate with the people who've who've given you feedback from India on your book? Well, absolutely. You know, Jayajanka has become um, quite a sort of popular, much loved film director in India, partly because huh. his films speak to. But there's a, no dancing. Generation. <laughs> there isn't platform. That's just another form of ignorance. Just to show that ignorance can be found even in the most exalted places. <laughs> um, I think partly because you know that sort of whole experience of moving away from the 
planned economy and its certainties, its emotional certainties, and moving into this new era mm -hmm. of uh, the liberalized economy and everyone on their own, um, the sundering of old bonds of family, of community. Uh, this particular experience of alienation, small town, the sort of small town communities falling uh -huh. apart and, and new uh, sort of very harsh, bleak ethics of, uh, of of capitalism arriving. I think people relate very strongly. Just the dislocations of, of that sudden thrust into the common present, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that's a concept that you, you draw on uh, Hannah Arendt's idea that we've all notionally been thrust into this common present, I think it's a terrific idea, um, this very sudden, abrupt, temporal distortion that's, that's, that, that re results from it. Um, and that idea figures very implicitly in, in From the Ruins of Empire, more explicitly in, in, in Great Clamor. Can you, just for, for the audience's sake, for our listeners at home too, what did Arendt really mean by this, and what is it that you find useful about this construct in understanding the challenges that developing states have in finding their place in the world? I think I use it probably in the um, piece on the Dalai Lama. That's right. Um, that that sort of quote from her, which is actually a quote from an essay she wrote about Kali Aspers. Um, and what does global citizenship entail um, in, a, in an interconnected world? And what kind of attitudes one ought to bring to these to this sort of to this to this fate that many of us are now basically confronted with of living in a very crowded, a very competitive world with all kinds of people whose cultures, whose backgrounds we don't really know much about. Um, and our sort of anxiety was that if we actually don't get to know them, if we don't get to know their uh, past, if we don't get to sympathize with their concerns, uh, what this sort of interconnectedness would lead to is a kind of universal irritability and uh, simmering frustration and, and rage. And in many ways, what she said, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, when the globe wasn't as interconnected as it is now, has been proven true. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, for, for, for people like myself, um, who, have, who have this extraordinary, enjoy this extraordinary privilege of travel and, and going to other cultures, and, and certainly within Asia, I think it's very important for us to establish a kind of direct, straightforward relationship with the sort of neighboring cultures and societies, particularly with countries or societies um, with which we've had, you know, been, uh, been sort of, with which, which actually we've been in, have, have had uh, wars, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I mean Pakistan and, and, of course, China. So I think uh, to bring, to show that uh, China's undergone a kind of historical crisis, a, a, a historical trauma of modernization, which is still ongoing, and that we in China can relate to a novelist like Yu Hua. Likewise, um, I was very surprised the last time I was in China to discover that, not surprised, but certainly you know, uh, taken aback by the sheer scale of uh, the success of a Indian film called Three Idiots. Right. which was uh, very big amongst a um, younger generation of Chinese who could relate very easily to the experience of these uh, Indian students at a prestigious um, engineering college and the kind of pressures being put upon them, the destruction of their childhoods, the, the fact they're being kind of dragged, kicking and screaming into the modern world where they have to really perform and, and be extremely, extremely... Uh, 
brilliant and, and uh, competitive all the time. Um, so the fact that you know these experiences sort of resonate at, at so many in so many different cultural contexts. And I just want to jump in with a couple of thoughts. First is that until Kaiser, you were talking about this book and the earlier book. I hadn't realized the extent to which, in a sense, it's a sequel. Yeah. In, the, in the sense, very different kind of book in structure and form. But you know, the animating theme and from Ruins is the shock of Japan's victory in um, the war against Russia and what that means. We didn't think an Asian country could do that. And in some sense, in this book, the shock of the spectacle of the Olympics and then also the survival of China during the financial crisis. But the other thing I just wanted to, going back to this idea of the ignorance of Indian until Indians about China and Chinese about India, when you think about somebody like Jia Zhangke, who I think is such an important figure, he has so little presence in the American imagination. I mean, he has such a... He's, he's beloved by people in kind of niche areas. Niche even in China, let's face it. I mean, if you ask 100 Chinese people who's, who've ever heard of him or seen any of his films, I mean, he's rare. I mean, he's... he's is, am I audience? Am I not? If you, yeah, okay, right. He's, he's not, not a mainstream filmmaker by any stretch of the imagination. So this is, this is so he captures an audience, though, in India, perhaps bigger Does than he? China. Just as there are Chinese writers who, Chinese writers, to gain a similar kind of foothold in some ways in the American imagination, it helps if they're imprisoned or in exile. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. I think Xia Zhengke would get more viewership in America if he were able to be tapped, typed as a dissident. You know, another uh, a, a, a concept that people have spoken about a lot recently is one of contested modernities, of modernization without wholesale westernization. Do you think that in China's case, or in, in, really in the case of any of China's neighbors, that there's been a coherent, alternative, essentially non-Western model of modernization that's emerged? Not really. I mean, not from the governments. Um, because the government, no, I don't mean just from the governments. I mean, know, I mean, a model of modernization that's emerged from social from movements. Social, okay. um, occasionally, you see a sort of glimmer of possibility there of another kind of development. I think maybe more so in India and in, in Indonesia, I find, um, than in say uh, China, China, Singapore, uh, or or indeed Singapore um, or or South Korea, um, where you can see it's perhaps possible for a country to be existing in sort of, you know, at different levels of temporality that you have a hypermodern city like uh, Bangalore, but you can also have, you know, people live, still living in a pre-modern economy. And I think... But it's not an integrated... I mean, is, I mean is, is there an integrated... No, of course there isn't. I mean, that, that's, that's really why I ask. But that's something that, that, that must bother you profoundly. It does, because, I mean, you know, to be honest, uh, we can't really seriously expect countries with large populations like India and China, uh, you know, three more than three billion people, to be really living like a few hundred million Europeans and Americans. Uh, and, and that is, I mean, at the end of the day, that is the vision, that is the fantasy being, you know, offered by global capitalism of the kind that our governments, our elites, our bureaucratic elites, our business elites have embraced. Um, and you'd like to see rejection of, of that more, I mean, you, you want to see criticism of, of, of that. I mean, that's your project, right? I have to ask you, I mean, bluntly, so then do you see yourself sort of in the mold of a, a modern Tagore? 
Dude. <laughs> that, would, that would be too too grand. Um, no, no. I mean, let's let's just he modestly. He doesn't get aside. booed when he speaks in China, right? Yeah. Well, no, right. Exactly. You, you, you're not booed when you, when you speak in China. That's that's interesting. But so I haven't to, spoken Tagore, to a young communist. Just for people who don't know who don't know who who Rabindranath Tagore was, he was a Bengali poet. He was a, a Nobel Prize winning poet, and in the early 1920s, he he made a series of trips to China where he tried to sell this vision of a, 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 an Eastern spiritual civilization and urged the young, uh, quite culturally iconoclastic Chinese who would embrace science and democracy as, as, as icons, urged them to repudiate that and to embrace instead their spiritual civilization, right? And if you want more about Tagore, the China story, you had a very good piece about Tagore in China recently. Shout out to Jeremy Barme sitting right here in the audience. <laughs> That's why I had to say it. No, no, I like the piece. I, I like the piece a lot. Yes. Um, so, okay, I'm going to press you on this. Don't, don't you find, you, you surely find, as he did, some frustration in what appears to be a, uh, an ever-shrinking number of Chinese intellectuals, probably Indian intellectuals, too, who haven't already sort of pledged allegiance to the same universal laws of progress that are expounded by these smooth-tongued Davos men who are the villains of your, of your book. Right? <laughs> I think, you know, in a way... That particular message that de Gaulle was putting out in the 1920s and 30s, um, I think it actually has more resonance today, uh, partly because, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, the greatest imperative for people in, in, in places like India and China was to actually build a strong state, some kind of buffer against Western imperialism. You know, otherwise you'd be sort of, you'd have civil war, you would have people nibbling on your territory or eroding your sovereignty. So now we've actually got that. We've got these uh, sovereign nation states that have accumulated a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And so there is some, you know, a greater scope than, say, what was available to Chinese leaders back in the 1920s and 30s to think about this whole process, uh, as opposed to, you know, just sort of sleepwalking into disaster, uh, which is what we're looking at. I mean, environmentally, socially, in all kinds of ways, um, we're looking at you know a pretty bleak future. Now, of course, intellectuals. Uh, this is a this is unfortunately a category um, that uh, at least Tagore um, did not or did not want to belong to. I mean, he was a he was an imaginative writer. He was a poet. Um, he was not a. He was just an intellectual in denial. Right? I mean, he was, he was an intellectual in denial. He was uh, he was not really concerned with the protocols of uh, intellectual life. He was, you know, speaking from experience, um, not you know, uh, really kind of addressing an intellectual audience either. He was right. sort of, um, addressing um, you know mostly mostly sort of ordinary people or or students or. Um, uh, and, and and I think we are now in a stage where the intellectual has become too close to either the state or to different 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 kind of power, which is the corporate media. Right. I, I want to talk about that when we move to the next section. But mm. uh, before we leave your your book, uh, there's a couple of things that really intrigued me here. One is that you tease uh, at this idea when you talk about uh, Wang Hui, who is uh, often sort of pigeonholed as a new left intellectual. Let me quote from something that you wrote here, because this is very much in line with what we're talking about. Quote, he, he is alert to and fears the other paradoxical possibility of neoliberalism in China. How, as in Russia, the anarchy unleashed by the unfettered market could make the authoritarian state appear not only necessary, but also attractive. Is this a fear that you share? 
I do, Clearly, and I think yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, actually so. deepened uh, since I wrote that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I would say that, that, that recent events have probably even made that more. And in India, I mean, we are looking now, really in a few weeks' time, uh, an authoritarian leader, a man who has been implicated in the mass murder of the religious minority. Now, he has a good chance in to Gujarat, become right? our next prime minister. Um, and we know that you know the problems he'll face, even if he assumes high office, uh, are so great, uh, nearly insurmountable, that he will be very quickly pushing those hot buttons of, of extreme hardline nationalism, you know, which his party did when they first came into power in 1998. Yeah. And we've also seen this movie, you know, in so many other places. We've seen this in Indonesia. We've seen this in Japan, of course, most uh, most most famously, where you have um, this kind of you know breakneck modernization and severe inequalities and. Uh, labor unrest, social unrest of all kinds, and you know it's the authoritarian tendencies that get also strengthened. And of course, there's always some you know leader also emerging, promising to restore order. Um, I also think you write very originally about Mao uh, in, in in words that I haven't actually um, seen. Again, let me let me quote from you. You talk about uh, the discrepancy between democratic India and authoritarian China is due to a complex interplay of political, geographical, and economic factors. Certainly it cannot be explained through the fantasies and delusions of an oriental despot. Mao's individual pathology goes only so far in explaining China today, and it pretty much is, is useless in figuring out the chairman's enduring, even growing influence outside China. I mean, here we're talking about Maoism in Nepal and in India, uh, and but is, is this, I, I read this and I, I, I found it very interesting because this isn't something uh, that we uh, we, we, we see as an explanatory vehicle for why China is as it is today. We don't see the Oriental despot necessarily as explaining all of this. Is that how maybe he is seen ordinarily among your, your Oriental readers? Well, there is that sort of idea that, um, you know, he was uh, a kind of dictator, really. And we know he wasn't a dictator in that sense that... Um, you know, he he was he was working in a very different system, which we which we, we in India certainly have a hard time understanding uh, how the CCP uh, was constituted, different hierarchies there, mm-hmm. and you know even even during the bleakest uh, moments in the nineteen fifties, um, how decision making, policy making at different levels, you know, what was that? I mean, this was sort of very cartoonish notion of this man sitting in Beijing, right. basically, you know, directing the entire country, just one man doing it all. So that was sort of the, 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 the notion, really, of the Oriental despot. I see. Um, but I think uh, also, you know, in India, we're not really aware of things like the Korean War, for instance, you know, what, what, a, what a great shadow that cast over the Chinese Revolution, right from the, you know, beginning 1949 onwards, and how that... Um, accelerated certain sort of tendencies which are always there. I mean, it kind of aggravated the sort of, you know, great uh, urge to modernize as quickly as possible, to build China into an industrial power. Um, these these kinds of uh, geopolitical pressures that were acting upon people like Mao, which is not to actually condone, you know, uh, mm-hmm. his, his sort of great blunders, his catastrophic crimes, but also to actually see them in some kind of context. If one were to see him as simply this extremely malicious uh, dictator, I think you'd be kind of really bleaching out uh, you know, very vast historical That's background. right. I mean, and I think you, you encapsulate it so well in, as you end that section on Mao. 
of the with the, the contradictions uh, you, you say it's also possible that the Chinese nation will continue in the decades ahead to acknowledge Mao as its father disgraced discredited and irreplaceable I thought that was very very brilliantly put um, Jeff I want to uh, draw you more into the conversation now as we move into the, the topic of intellectual history and uh, I think that that uh, it's been a project with me of late to engage with a lot of people about the state of intellectual history, as I, as I said at the opening. Uh, the lamentable fact, at least by my lights, that it's sort of fallen out of fashion in academia and even as a topic of more general writing on China. Um, so, Pankaj, your book, From the Ruins of Empire, and the, uh, the, the recent volume by Orville Schell and John DeLury, I had the chance to interview or Orville John was going to come on the show, but unfortunately had to cancel. Anyway, uh, in Wealth and Power, these are the beginnings, I hope, of maybe a revival of interest in intellectual history. Um, I'm, I'm hearing other things. I was speaking with Jeremy Barmay the other day, uh, t talking about um, some of the stirrings, uh, giving me more hope that, that uh, people are taking a new, a new uh, interest in uh, this. So I, w I would submit that our shortfall in understanding China's intellectuals and their history really cripples us in our ability to understand China today. Um, last year, I was here at, a, at AAS, and I was glad to see that, that there was a panel featuring some of the, the best and the brightest of talking about the works of, of late Joseph Levinson. But I actually today meet very few young scholars who are focused on this aspect of history. Um, it's kind of almost definitionally a very elitist field of study and has is therefore you know decidedly quite unfashionable Jeff um, what would you, would you agree do you think what is the state of play of intellectual history of Asia these days do you think that I'm too pessimistic or well I, I would I would give a slightly different narrative of what what went on certainly okay. when I was trained in um, graduate school in in the 1980s uh, Chinese history was embracing the social turn, which had broken across um, European history a bit earlier, and there was a lot of desire to do a bottom-up kind of history that brought the experiences of ordinary people into the narrative more than thinking about um, purely in terms of ideas and pure. Also, there was a move away from focusing heavily on the interactions between China and the West because it was an idea that too much of um, scholarship had been done within either a modernization paradigm, as Paul Cohen was describing it, or as he, he an impact response, impact response right. or, um, or a simplistic notion of imperialism, of just rejection. And so part of the move initially was to do more bottom-up history, and then um, another wave kind of broke of the cultural turn, where there was a lot of interest in kind of symbolism, ritual, a kind of... Um, if if social history was partly a borrowing from sociology and a kind of social anthropology, then there was a borrowing from literary theory and from, um, from cultural anthropology. And so some of those things then led away from a kind of classic um, history of ideas. Mm -hmm. but, but there was, within that move, uh, um, some interest in intellectuals actually as a social group. Right, and, and, so, and in China, the Chinese context, they're a very different social group than the intellectuals of, of Europe or, or America. But, but you certainly had, a, a, I mean, there was a whole body of writing um, by people like Merle Goldman and Timothy Cheek that were, were largely concerned with talking about intellectuals' ideas and also their social roles. And in some senses, there were places where 
an interest in intellectuals and in social history came together. Certainly in my own case, because I looked at student movements in my, in, my, in my first book, I was interested in what did intellectuals actually do, sometimes on the streets, and how did they organize, treating them like individual or like, like social actors who might have to make decisions like other social actors rather than as sort of disembodied intellects. Right. And then there were also things which, again, maybe weren't a kind of grand intellectual history in a certain tradition, but we're still thinking about the, the thought and ideas of, of individuals, sometimes through biographies of those, those people. So between all of those, I don't think, um, I don't think intellectual history of, of completely was eclipsed, but there was a move away from thinking that some of the, you know, that there would, that there would be a book about Liang Qichao every, every five or ten years. Well, it's always goddamn Liang Qichao, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. <laughs> and Pan Kaj has to plead guilty here, because China, who is it represented by, you right. know, in, the, in ruins. Well, I mean, so the, uh, the intelligence as a class, as I've suggested, I mean, they are, uh, and I'm using the, the word I mean, as a, a translation from the Chinese, zhishifunzi, which... It doesn't translate directly into the word intellectual uh, used in the Anglophone world. They were very self-conscious, conscious of themselves as belonging to a particular class and a class that had sort of experienced the vicissitudes of, 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 of modern Chinese life across the century and a half or so, um, where they've, they've experienced it collectively. Uh, they've been very much at the center uh, of political life. Uh, throughout modern China's history, um, China is a country where I would I would say that the relationship between the state and the intellectual, between the pen and the sword, to use that metonym, um, right up there among the the real driving engines of history. I think I mean it's 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 that's at least my 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 belief on this. And so I mean QED, there's a a, a, a paramount need, an absolute need to have a good fundamental understanding of who these intellectuals are, of their relationships with power. And it should follow that we ought to, you know, devote a lot of effort to, to understanding them, to dissecting their writings and their speeches and uh, following their debates and, if, if possible, to attend, you know, their salons. And, and so, so I see two big problems right now. First, I mean, that maybe we're just not paying enough attention to them. Jeff may disagree with me. But second, and, and here's where I, I want both of your inputs, um, that many people who are writing on Chinese intellectuals, whether as journalists or as scholars, they, they tend to conflate intellectuals with activists or with dissidents and accord them status as intellectuals, mostly in proportion to their buy-in with to Western liberal democratic ideas and their values, and the, the, with the, the proportional to their vehemence of their critique of, of the party. We saw this no better than with the whole, you know, kerfuffle that, that, that came after uh, the awarding of the Nobel Prize to Moyen, right, where suddenly, no, he doesn't pass the litmus test because his pH level is not low enough. He's not acidic enough against the... Uh, the Communist Party. Uh, and, and Pankaj, you were very much a part of that debate. So, I mean, my sense is that, um, that if, if the, this conflation of activists and intellectuals, uh, if, if this, the, this application of a kind of uh, critical litmus test, it, it, it forces us to ignore or it causes us to ignore and renders us very ignorant of a very large percentage of China's intellectuals, um, a, a percentage that might even constitute, I mean, to in, invoke that phrase, a silent majority, uh, the ones who have been co-opted or who do buy into the grand compromise that is, um, you know, China today. Um, so do, do, you, do, you, do you agree? I mean, I, I wouldn't call you guilty of this, first of all, for your inclusion of people like Tsui Zhiyun uh, uh, and... Um, 
Wang Hui and people like that, maybe you, you, you're not guilty of this, so don't feel like I'm attacking you here. Thank you. Um, I think, I mean, this is, a, this is an old um, trick that uh, you, you assume a position, uh, broadly speaking, of Western liberalism and say anyone who doesn't really conform to its uh, main principles is uh, someone who's not a liberal, first of all, and probably not even a proper thinker yeah. in that they are invoking uh, religious philosophies or um, spiritual traditions that are not, they don't really constitute thinking um, of, a, of, a, of, of the kind that, that we, of course, you know, engage in all the time. Um, so I'm, what, what I'm trying to say is that what I've become interested in lately are these traditions of vernacular liberalism in, in, in places like India um, or indeed in, uh, in, in, in Egypt. You can see versions of that, even in Liang Chichao's response or Kangiwe's response to the ideas of Western liberalism. He's sort of trying to modulate, trying to formulate a, a, an indigenous version of liberalism, mm -hmm. which is not about economic self-interest, which is not about self-aggrandizement, but actually is you know slightly more to use this red word communitarian, mm -hmm. which is talking about you know, social harmony, but the the, the the responsibilities that individuals have to the larger collectivity, and you see that uh, it's it's a remarkably similar process in in in, in India too at that time, where uh, people are confronting the ideology of Western liberalism and then responding to it with a, with, with a kind of vernacularized, indigenized version of it, drawing upon particular religious, cultural uh, traditions, uh, scriptural uh, traditions of their own. And I think we do have to actually pay attention to that uh, in many ways because that kind of vernacular liberalism is much more alert, much more responsive to actually prevailing socio-economic circumstances and social realities in these countries, even today, even today. So this idea that we should really only think of uh, people as intellectuals or as dissidents or as liberals when they take a very clear-cut stance against their respective governments, which are authoritarian, of course, um, it's only then we will grant them this recognition. Right. Jeffrey, do you think that's the case, that, well, that we only grant this this hallowed status of, of, of intellectual to people who agree largely with the the Whiggish belief in progress. And well, I, I think I think what's interesting is there's a conflation. I mean, I was thinking I, I I partly agree with what you were saying and partly felt a disconnect. And I think there's the conflation you, you, between the, the disconnect. What you felt was actual guilt. The, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, Actually, it's a feeling. You there you go. I should I should learn to live. With. Um, no, what I was thinking is I, I was feeling that I was I was nodding along because I think in the general Western perception or thinking about China, there's a very hard time to recognize the existence of intellectuals that do not either kind of sell out completely to the state or end up in opposition to the state. I completely agree with you there. When I think about what academics are doing, and I think there's some projection at another period, and, I, and I'm looking out and in the audience is Jeremy Barmay, and at the um, China Story site, they're continually trying to bring attention to uh, people who are intellectuals that don't fit in, aren't easy to categorize. And in the China yearbooks that come out, you have a figure like Han Han, who I think you need to make space for as a hard to hard to attack and easily categorize 
um, intellectual. They, they well, he didn't from, graduate from college. He's not I know, but he still he writes things that people read and argue about. Right, and actually, right. that's another version of intellectual. But I'm looking, and he's sitting next to um, Jay Carter, who wrote a book historically, um, "Heart of China, Heart of Buddha," or "Heart of Buddha, Heart of China." Second one. Okay, <laughs> go out and order it now. Out in paperback, um, which is largely wrestling with the ideas as well as the life of a figure who is both a Buddhist and a nationalist and sort of how trying to, recon trying to reconcile with a person whose life story doesn't map easily onto the categories. The problem is that even if you write scholarly work about these people, or even actually if you write popular works about those people, the fact of the mindset wanting to pigeonhole people makes it really hard. I talk to people about Han, I say, have you heard of Han Han? And then I, you know, when they say no in most non-China circles, I start to describe him, you know, a best-selling um, novelist who was a very widely read blogger, who in some cases had a kind of wicked sense, of, has a wicked sense of humor, a bit like a Chinese Stephen Colbert, when he kind of takes on a foe agreeing with the government stance, and then it's really uh, shows how silly it is. And I, I say, and he's a race car driver too, and he wins races, and he's a product pitch man. And I say, you know, this person is not easy to fit into the categories we're used to of either Chinese intellectuals or Eastern European intellectuals under state socialism of a different sort. And they say, gee, this is fascinating, and I haven't heard about him. Now I'm glad you've told me about him. Like maybe someday, if the New Yorker did a profile of him, I would have heard of him. Uh, I mean, and really, I said, the Han, New Han is going to be is going to be the corrective to this. My God, no, no I'm sorry. No. I would, he's just one. <laughs> okay. The other, my other favorite is Xu Hua. My students, by the way, have a drinking game whenever I mention Han Han because I'm a, a bit obsessed. But I become more obsessed with Xu Hua now, who I know. Pong oh, who, yeah, who certainly doesn't qualify as yet another liberal. He, <laughs> He's he's a complicated figure, though. I mean, he's he's a defier of simple establishment intellectual or dissident, a complete you know a sellout or I mean you know it's just oh. hard to tackle. Oh, you okay, may okay. you may we may disagree. Yeah, I think you. we do. Uh, <laughs> you know what? We're running out of time, and I do want to open up the floor to some questions. And what I'd like you to do is come forward here if you have a question and use my microphone and ask it. So rush on up, come on, or I'm going to have to improvise here. You're going to force me to improvise. I don't like improvising. I'm improvising. Now I'm improvising. Um, we can talk about Zhu Xuanqian. Yeah, yeah. Here he's coming. Okay, here, here comes James. James Carter. James Carter, St. Joseph's University, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, so you're um, first time caller. First time caller, long time listener. Um, so, you are sitting next to so Pankaj, you're sitting next to the journal, editor of the Journal of Asian Studies. You're speaking, at, giving a keynote at the Association for Asian Studies in your time in China and India, as the two sort of anchors of that. Do you think that there's? Do you think that's a legitimate concept? Do you think that, that when you when you spend time in Asia and you spend time in, in when you spend time in India and you spend time in China, do you get a sense that these the people in these two places consider themselves as part of the same thing in a meaningful way? They probably don't. I mean, I think, you know, to be honest... Okay, let's disband. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Let's just... The honest, last I, event of the association. I, uh, I've spent most of my adult life now in a village in India. And, uh, you know, the people living there don't even consider themselves part of India. Um, so I think, you know, it's very difficult, and, and certainly not the state, you know, that they are part of, which is Himachal Pradesh. So our sense of place, our sense of belonging is actually, you know, it can be very diverse or it can be extremely narrow. And I think, you know, this sort of clear-cut identification with a country or indeed with a region 
um, is really only a, an, an illusion of sorts. Um, I mean, I think in that sense, a, um, that sort of sense of nationality or, or, or indeed sense of regionality, to coin a word, um, is, is extremely rare. We've got Jeremy Barnet coming up. <laughs> Let's return to this, um, the idol of the Western left, which is Wang Hui, um, <laughs> who's become a sort of token neo-Marxist, Carl Schmittian thinker of China, and much lauded internationally, and makes the face of authoritarian government in China acceptable to the um, academic, well, left, lefty academic populists. But as a member of the, the National uh, People's Political Consultative Council, as a praiser of the third party plenum last year, and as a, a person who alerts us to the dangers of global neoliberalism, but not to the dangers of authoritarian rule in the guise of um, <laughs> revived Maoist Xi Jinping, Chairman Xi Jinping Maoism. Um, how does one place him nowadays? Not place him in the terms of some intellectual airy-fairy space, but him and his fellows, the neo-leftists who have helped really um, theorize their way into authority today, especially with Chairman Xi, who's now, as you know, nine times chairman of nine different committees. Jeff, you want to take, I mean, I have I have my take on this, which is pretty obvious. I mean, it's it's you know that utterly Chinese pragmatic need. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, he, he's in the shit right now. I mean, after after the fall of Guosilai, I mean, these people were um, right. Well, he survived right. Well, I mean, but you know, Sui Zhuyan didn't survive quite as happily, and the two are ideological, you know, twins. So there's 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 quite a bit of difficulty that that whole faction faces in trying to sort of find a new uh, relevant space in the new party and part of it will require a lot of brown nosing <laughs> and, and so you praise the third plenum well, the and utopia you, faction is no, no, the utopia faction you know was was is still on the outs i mean there's they're still outside of, of the mainstream but it looks like Wang Hui and some of the new left are being re-embraced um but, but, I mean, you, so you make them out to sound like they, they've just sort of groveled their way back into Xi's good graces. No, but let's not forget also that Wang Hui, I mean, he has his, he has, he has his credibility. I mean, he has his 89 cred, right? No. You don't? Okay. All right. uh, I'm not going to argue with Jeremy. But, uh, for another time, next time we'll have, our, have you on the show, we will we'll discuss we this, this idol of the uh, of lefty. Bankaj, you, you know the man. What's your, your take on it? Have you talked to him since the fall of the I haven't, actually, I haven't. Um, okay. So I'm not really qualified to um, answer. I haven't, haven't been in touch with him for some years now. Okay. Um, but if I could just say... Anyone have his number? Let's call him right yeah. now. When there have been moments... Of, I mean, I think of the Liu Xiaobo issue. Now, Xiaobo is not somebody I like particularly, and I've worked on and off with him over 25 years. But when he was jailed and all that stuff happened, there was a call around by Cui Weiping to all the leading Chinese intellectuals, just asking, will you support freedom of speech? And all the liberal, so-called Western-style intellectuals, would speak out in favor, yes, I don't agree with Xiaobo, but I do support freedom of speech. Wang Hui and nearly every pseudo-lefty thinker refused to respond. It comes down to, what are you going to, you know, what do you actually stand for? Okay. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think it would be, um, it would be wrong to end a, to to have a discussion about intellectuals in in contemporary China without and talking about the very current situation without talking about the constriction of space of uh, figures since she came to power of figures who were particularly like Togi at um, the National Minorities University other figures um, Xu Zhiyong 
figures who were taking, again, which I think is hard to capture the Western imagination, quite, quite daring steps, but not in a kind of overtly challenging sense of trying to expand a realm for a kind of um, critical engagement. And those spaces have constricted. I'm afraid we're, we're very close to, out of time right now. But what I want to do in the last minute we have is ask Pankaj to give us a very brief precy of the keynote address that he's going to be delivering tomorrow evening. <laughs> Just a, a, a taste of what we're in for for tomorrow night. Pankaj, please. Um, Actually, I, I wanted to add something to... Oh, no, no, no. You're, okay, I'll, I'll go okay. ahead. Okay, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. Okay. But you're eating into just, your minute. Just very quickly, I mean, I think, you know, thinking of my, my experience of statist intellectuals in, um, in, in, in India, there is this sort of idea that power can be used responsibly. I mean, that this is, you know, as long as you have a sovereign nation state which is immune to neoliberalism, then you can actually do things. You still have this capacity. The state can build this capacity, which can be an illusion, which can be a fantasy. But this is the sort of you know fantasy that many status intellectuals in, in a place like India India work with. Um, about the keynote, I'm actually proposing something quite similar to what I just said, which is to say that um, you know what kind of Asian scholarship feels urgent, or scholarship on Asia at this time in the post-American world, when the leading ideologies of the Western world, the sort of universalist ideologies, Marxism, first of all, and then now economic liberalism um, and modernization as a project, uh, both of them look to be in very serious trouble. Um, so what kind of intellectual resources do we need now in Asia for Asians? And if you want to know what that is, Come tomorrow. <laughs> yes, thanks very much for coming tonight. I think we, we've, we've learned that, uh, as Jeremy pointed out, that it, it, there is indeed a very deep problem of, of people dismissing uh, intellectuals who don't get behind the very basic uh, endorsement of free speech and they don't qualify as intellectuals or should be just. Uh, I'm just joking with you, man. Don't worry. Uh, next time you're in Beijing, man, you're, you're, we're, we're on for a good talk about this. <laughs> thanks, thanks, folks. Uh, let's give it up for Pankaj and for Jeffrey. And we will uh, see you next week on the Civic Podcast. Take care.